0: So how do we create containers or environments where we return to civil discourse, which I don't see much evidence of, you know, when we're sort of talking about extremes, even within education. Now we talk about student voice and student choice and student agency. We need to talk more around teacher voice, teacher choice and teacher agency. To me, if they can walk out of school knowing who they are at this point in life in terms of their values, what they care about, what they're willing to stand up for, and they have the skills to do so, they've the better chance at making a difference in their life.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Dr. Bern Nichols. I met Bern after I wrote the blog on how we should move beyond student-centered learning and embrace more biocentric view of the world uh, and set of values in order to give purpose to our learning and our actions and our thinking. And she and I spoke for quite a long time, uh, just had a Zoom call to introduce ourselves. We really connected uh, on a lot of issues and and thinking about the the good of the planet, the good of uh, humanity, the good of the animals, how they are all connected and you can't dissociate them. You can't uh, perpetuate these, these distinctions. And really what struck me with Bern is just the fact that she's such an incredibly intelligent human being, but also one of the most humble human beings I've ever met. She's driven by this passion uh, for curiosity, for feeding her own curiosity, for nourishing and fostering curiosity of others. And she openly embraces the fact that there is so much she needs to learn in the world, and that curiosity brings her happiness. And I find this incredibly refreshing in a world where it's often not seen as acceptable to admit that you don't know or to uh, express interest in other ideas that show some kind of weakness. And so Burns' humility is her strength, her desire to um, uh, be curious and, and, and love that is something that is really inspirational for me. So I, I'm kind of describing my own perception of how I see her, but, but I'm so fortunate and grateful to have her. Um, uh, come into uh, my, my uh, immediate circle, I guess. Uh, and so I would like to really leave space for this conversation and uh, hopefully you'll uh, you'll enjoy it. Hi, Bern. I will open up with the question I ask every guest, which is, who are you, what do you do, and how do you try to make a difference?
0: Gee, thank you for giving me those questions, Benjamin. I, I, I really appreciated actually the time to stop, pause, just think about those questions because I think we're capturing one of the biggest issues around education is time to think and time to reflect and so thank you for that and I think that's a big question who am I because I'm continually exploring that I don't I'm. you know I'd say most people would call me midlife and that sort of thing and I I Figure. There's still a long way to go to even figure that one out. But who am I in terms of just if you look up for me on look me up on LinkedIn would be Bern Nichols. Um, I have a PhD in education. Um, that is a whole story in its own right because I think that identifies who I've become as an educator. So you might want to pick that one up later or what have you. But um, I am a passionate lifelong learner first and foremost. I think if you said what's one word you would love to have on your um, in your eulogy, it would be she was curious um, and a lifelong learner. That would be the ultimate. Um, and I, I just love working with young people and teachers in particular. Um, I, I love the um, opportunities it provides me to keep growing, and just that mutual opportunity to learn from others and I think that disposition is something um I really value and it's something I've had to work on Benjamin over time you know just through the stages and ages of life and what have you um, so that's who I am and as you indicated I have a very diverse background um you know I I've certainly been probably teaching for over 30 years but I hate saying that you know because I have this real issue around um um it's not about the years it doesn't matter how long you are an educator as long as you're young at heart and young at mind and to be honest with you I feel like I'm getting more young and childlike as I get older in terms of just that exploration that wanting to play and get in the sandpit of life a little bit and um, sort of rid myself of all those restrictions of the compliance and everything that education stands for now and And sort of, I guess, being at that stage of life where I can say (laughs) I'm ready to challenge. I don't have too much stake in it anymore other than the students deserve better. So that's who I am. And I love to agitate a little bit, but within reason, because I also hope I come from a place of respect and humility because um, I don't have the answers. I have more questions than answers, and I prefer to sit with that. So that's the who am I, I guess. I've been in education, I've been in a multiple different schools across Australia. I also went international as a consultant for seven years. That was amazing um, because it just opened my eyes up to globalization, but also just different thinking. Um, And then I'm now back into the classroom as a teacher, um, as the leadership developer. So I innovate around leadership and what does that mean now? as well as research design and leading research projects in the school. Most important, I was thinking about what lights my fire is I was thinking about yesterday in class, you know, just working with young people, helping them try to understand or not helping, just sitting there with them and saying, you know, who are you in in effect? Um, because they're doing, I, I teach research sort of um, project it's, it's the combination I guess of project-based learning and research methodology where I provide the containers and the scaffolding for independent learning around what do you care about what's your question and then how do you find out and and so what what's the action or what's the implication of what you're finding out and that's that's who I am and what I do um what is learning oh my gosh
1: yeah that's the other you question know. that we ask uh To everyone, uh, how how do you define learning just so we can have a common, uh, just common ground because we always talk about it, but no no one really has agreed on on a definition, which is okay, but then we need to start to think about what that means.
0: Yeah. And I think the how do I make a difference? I would hope every day I'm trying to make a difference by just turning up authentically and and living the um, reality of learning being a very messy business, uh, not linear uh cyclical very much i think learning um for me if i wanted to use some sort of a metaphor it's reflected just in nature in the environment you know the cycles of life etc entropy whatever that you never arrive um there is a time where you feel like or i feel like i'm learning a huge amount and there's other times where i think i'm going backwards so that fallowness of winter or you know so i can sort of i, I like playing with metaphors to help me understand learning it's interesting. Um, Benjamin, you asked that question because it's it's a question that really came to a head when I was consulting because we were working um, in that field of well, what is a learning focused school? What does that mean? You know, because we tend to be schools full of stuff. And I used to say, you know, we're we're more about being stuffed schools, playing on words in terms of full of stuff, but wh- why? You know, what's this the 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 purpose around that? And then we're playing with the idea of what's a learning-focused school. And originally, it was more a cognitive approach, where you know, learning is, you know, what's new learning, what's consolidation, drowning, um, um, etc. But for me now, it's changed to learning is whole body. Learning isn't just a cognitive process. It's 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 the lived experience. It's making sense of our lived experience. It's I think. We've, we've got to move away from these containers of curriculum and saying that's learning. It's not. They're just, they're just curriculum. But move more toward um, how we experience learning in that uniqueness of every young person. When I work with young people, you know, we try and put them in boxes that don't fit because of a learning definition that doesn't fit. Um, you know, of ages and stages. We know all of that argument. So. The next question that I struggle with is, well, what is learning that matters? And that's David Perkins talks about, life-worthy learning and, you know, what's life-giving learning? And and so it seems like we're on a a big swing at the moment. I'm not necessarily saying that we're talking about this in the staff rooms, but I think in terms of educational thought leadership, it's certainly, I think, a, a big question you're asking because how we define learning defines the decisions we make in schools, for example. So if I define learning, I would define learning for myself as that innate ability um, to tap into my curiosity. Um, I'm working on this idea, you know, I know that Ron Richard talks a lot about thinking being the precursor to learning. I'd suggest there's something missing there. I, from my own personal story, which we won't have time to today, is I believe it's curiosity that is the precursor to thinking, and then thinking becomes the precursor of learning. I will not learn anything if I am not slightly interested. It's just the way we we operate. And so that's why I so love PBL, but also that, and I know you've got your PhD too, that there's so much richness in, in research methodology, not in the dry, boring thing that people have, It is the most amazing experience to know how to explore and discover something that matters to you and to do it in a way that is meaningful and that can lead to action. So for me, I'm moving more toward learning and pedagogy that encapsulates the the development intentionally of curiosity. Now, how do we do that? And I then go back to my own story and I think, well, I got snippets of that when I was granted by things I would be watching on. Like I remember The P- Colour Purple. It was just this amazing movie because it opened up my whole world to the injustice of racism and it was just because I lived in North Queensland, which um, we have Indigenous issues in the north and, and what have you, which I won't go into, but it really spoke to me and, and, and my heart. And so therefore learning is something of heart and mind as well as curiosity um, so I guess what I'm trying to get at is how how do we define learning through that lens, that lens of igniting curiosity in our young people? But then, Benjamin, I think, what about us as teachers? What's what's keeping us curious? What's keeping us engaged in an educational system that quite frankly suffocates me? All right? As you know, we're at the coalface. Um and it's suffocating in that we there is compliance, there is expectation. And how do you leverage those points where you, you can get those pieces in there that you know make a difference to what's happening with your students and in within your classroom culture? So I haven't answered your question because I don't know if there is an answer because I think learning is a very unique thing. When we start trying to define learning, I wonder if we run the risk of then putting another box on learning because I know schools have gone down the pathway of, well, let's create a definition of learning that reflects our school culture, which I think is a positive step forward. But I wonder if that can be, um, I see them on walls, for example, in schools. I don't necessarily know if they're lived. Right? Do you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm happy for you to pop in anytime because I love the fact that learning is an exploration—it's—it's—it's it's, it's bouncing ideas off one another. It's collaborating. It's saying, "What do you think?" That's learning because you're pushing my edges. We need our edges pushed.
1: The, the last podcast we had, I don't know if you had a chance to, to listen to it, was with Tom Markham, who is uh, one of the, the founders of, of PBL. And his work recently in the book that he recommended to me, which I picked up and read and passed on to a colleague of mine at, uh, at school, is, is about this idea that you cannot dissociate the brain and the heart. And, and he's talking about even the, the biological nature of the heart that it's got neurons that are similar to the ones of the brains, so that it has a, a greater electromagnetic field, and that it sends up more information. Uh, to the brain, that the brain does to the heart, and even our intestines have so many, so many um, uh, uh, sensors. So it is a whole body experience, and and this idea that we are cutting, learning at this cognitive, this this idea that we need academic rigor, whatever that means. Um, even though rigor, if you look at dictionary, it means suffering, but um, it, it's 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 a complete disconnect. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I so appreciate this idea of curiosity and, and and the motivation, which which does come from our gut. I'm curious. I want to spend time learning about something, mm-hmm. not because I'm told to. I, I just wonder why it is that teachers uh, are not allowed to explore their curiosity, even if that can be contained within a curricular structure, even that could be contained within learning outcomes if people want to use that. But why shouldn't curiosity, even from the teacher's point of view, be the guiding um spearhead i guess of of curriculum of learning experiences of modeling what, what's your what's your experience with that about about teachers being able to let go
0: mm, that's complex i think there's a number of levels i'm just trying to put myself into that situation because i've got to develop another curriculum coming up um I wonder if it's something to do with the fact that we're still hanging on to a, tr- a traditional. I can only speak from my Australian experience that an under a misconception around what curriculum is, and and a curriculum is a container. It's a scaffold. It's a it's a a, a navigation map for one. And we don't have to cover all of that curriculum. And I wonder about the fact that maybe lead, as leaders in schools, and I'm not talking about us and them, I'd see myself as a leader in a school, we're all leaders in schools, is that we're not pushing back enough on that construct of curriculum. So looking at this curriculum, say, for example, in the humanities here in Australia, Year 9, whatever, what are the essential um, understandings and key questions that we want and what would that look like? And rather than going a mile wide, how can we go... miles deep and that's where the curiosity comes so what we're challenging even within our department at school at the moment is we create the container we do the front loading of skills and essential um, knowledge for example then we let them go and then we become guides on the side and as you would know true supervisors of the process if you're in a phd situation or or mentors and i i think it's 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 that we're in the middle of change at the moment. It's a bit like we've got a foot in both camps and there's 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 permissions almost that need to be given because I don't believe as a teaching profession we have agency. Now, we talk about student voice and student choice and student agency. We need to talk more around teacher voice, teacher choice and teacher agency because I do believe as teachers, we we would love to be able to embrace curiosity and and do that, but it's almost like, but what if I but what if I haven't covered the curriculum? What if I get caught out, or what if the parents complain because I haven't covered algebra? You know, I think there's a lot of fear that comes from external sources, whether they're real or not, that's up for question. But we live in a culture of accountability, and and certainly in Australia, we don't have the the testing issues. We that I see in other countries, but we're still measured by PISA and this and that, which we know is quite a, um, I don't know what the word is, it doesn't capture the complexity of the young person. So I don't think I've answered the question, but I'd love to hear what other, this is where I'd love to have roundtables with with teachers who are thinking, well, what is that, asking them that question, you know, and I think I'm wondering, again, whether we need to get a little bit more balance into the decision-making processes around well what is the future of education well the future's now for god's sake it's not it's not tomorrow it's now we're, we're struggling with it now but who are the voices at the table because they're the ones that are that have the power and the influence and like always the important voices which are students and teachers are never at the table when when we're making big systems decisions for example so it's it's that flattening thing as well so i think i've gone in circles there but I think it's 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 I don't believe teachers aren't curious I believe they're constrained I believe they're suffocated and, but they do find air within their classroom you know what I mean where they do have control
1: and and that is the thing I mean it's it is much like the kids get their curiosity stifled because of the curriculum and they have to do this and they have to learn about the causes of world war 1 teachers have to teach about the causes of world war 1 mm-hmm. And I often hear, oh, but universities want this, or if they don't have this certain level of uh, of calculus, then they'll never get into a, an elite university, as if that was the be-all end-all. Mm. And I guess it's, it's bringing that conversation to the table, the triangle of employer, university. It's not really a triangle, I guess it's more of a line, but employer, mm. university, and K-12. Um, and trying to see exactly what's needed here because universities will have to change what they're looking for because they care about their outputs they care about kids who are going to be employed uh sorry by then they're not longer kids but but employees who graduates who are going to be employable creative look good on the university right they only care about their outputs which means that they have to control their inputs and if we continue to Bring in folks who are compliant and and follow the rules and, and, and you do so well on the on the on, on the test, that doesn't necessarily translate in the employment world. So the universities will have to change as well, which then brings it down to K-12. I, I just wonder how possible it is for the K-12 to push back or just to be more courageous, or or what happens until they they stop glorifying, deifying this university admissions process and how things might change. Um, just along that line, and somebody was telling me that Google. Uh, I think it was Dwayne Matthews, uh, like a, six months ago, when 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 I spoke to him on a podcast. He said that Google now is uh, offering courses for minimal amount of money, and if you are able to achieve a certain level, they'll consider hiring you right there, even though you're in high school. I mean, that's quite. You know, they, they're just completely overlooking the uh, the 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 university piece, and 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 things are changing. But gosh, as, as, so long as we're glorifying this idea of of the university being the final, uh, you know, the the final step to anything that's worthwhile in life, um, at least for a young person, um, never it, it just seems insurmountable. Mm. Uh, just got to break that mold.
0: Mm. And and everyone's got a stake in it. That's the issue as well, you know. And it's it's recognizing that. But I I, I see signs of hope. I must admit, you know, I look at what the Mastery Transcript Consortium's doing and how they're pushing back on the Ivy League universities and and what have you and there's certainly that movement here in Australia, but it's it's baby steps in a way, because you know, I know the universities know they have to shift and change, but you still have to convince parents and other stakeholders that, you know, a number doesn't necessarily capture um, whether your child will be successful in life beyond school, if that's what they're wanting. Um, so I do think there is enough movement going on but it's it's glacial in and it's and what I'm noticing too with looking at learner profiles so that you can co-construct a student's attributes and skills and what they're doing so more of a google profile so to speak is that requires intense work who does it Um, who moderates it who constructs the um, the framework around that how do you Create rigor, you know, so to speak, so that it's it's seen as, um, you know, worthwhile and important. So therefore, then goes back to I oh, will put that on the teachers. Then that'll be part of what they need to do. So, you know, it's it's a it's a merry-go-round around, and it's almost like we all know at our heart level that the system is a system that's designed for our current economic system, and that's what it supports. So. Um, you know th- th- there's a there's a requirement i guess of bigger constructs that need to be broken down and it's the education system is a system with within that bigger system of economic and political framing capitalism etc so yeah you know, we're, we're talking big questions here but i think how do we hold i guess what i i, I love my profession i love the, the privilege of being in these young people's lives i think is an absolute privilege and therefore, that's why I think I can't not take my foot off the pedal around wondering and questioning like you do, and you know transferring that into my classroom and and experimenting and 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 what have you. I, I see school as my big laboratory, to be quite honest, of testing out my ideas and and getting feedback from students and and other stuff. I, I love it, um, but how do we scale that? You know, how do we scale those really? you know what Tom's doing with PBL and the design thinking and all of these there's so much goodness and good learning i believe happening around the world how do we create those networks of coming together and sharing for the common good so to speak um so that and i guess that's what you're trying to do with your podcast too is how do we network and and create that grassroots movement and and hold teachers to, when they're wanting to step outside the lines, so to speak, and say, well, you're not alone. You're not thinking the same. Of, you know, there are other people that think this way. And so I see at my stage and age of life is how to mentor and grow and push those boundaries. But within a, 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 a like our young people, they need to feel safe to learn. So do our teachers. You know, they're already vulnerable enough. You know, how do we create the containers that enable them to safely explore and push those current boundaries Um, yeah so there's a whole psychology sitting behind it as well Um, and the parents how do we bring our parents rightfully so along and how do we co-educate with them co-partner with them it's all about co and we're not good at co because we're living in such a a construct of i rather than us and i think there's there's some of those things that we've got to really address before we can address the education system is you know what's in it for me to what's in it for the planet what's in it for the good of our community and those sorts of questions and that's my other passion around education and that whole thing of curiosity is is how do we engage young people to to me if they can walk out of school knowing who they are at this point in life in terms of their values, what they care about, what they're willing to stand up for, and they have the skills to do so, they've a better chance at making a difference in their life than someone with a university high university entrance score necessarily. They might too. I'm just saying that. It's it, And then I go, we, we think in binaries. It's not either or. It's how can it be both and. You know, like I see at the moment, Benjamin, and, and it worries me a little is how we create dividedness in everything we do as humans. It must be this tribal nature. I don't know. You know, so we've got the progressive camp and then we've got the traditional camp around education. We're not going to get anywhere through that dividedness. We have to be in this together in terms of a both end. So in my school, which would be traditional, I'm bringing in progressive thinking, progressive pedagogy. What I do in the classroom is not traditional and yet I can still cut the mustard, as we say here in Australia. I still, you know, so how do we, because for the sake of the students now, we, we, we can't wait for this sort of utopian ideal of what education should be. We need to just do it now, you know, in within the spheres of influence that we have. My father used to always say to me, you know, Bernie said, if you can't do it in the small, don't expect to be able to do it in the big. And so we don't, we, we've got to stop thinking and I find this really hard, utopian, certainly have that as an end goal, but what does that look like now in this moment for this student, for this school? How do we we create, you know, change momentum in that way? Because otherwise I think I know myself I could just avoid doing anything and just love the thinking component because I love to think. I love to think big. But if I can't bring that big thinking down into something pragmatic and and scalable for other teachers, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just being, I'm just, what's the word? I'm just looking after my own ego here in terms of my, my capacity to think and what have you. So one of the joys of my, um, at the moment at school for me, is I'm starting to see slight changes in terms of, teachers coming to me and saying, "Bern, I'd love to investigate this project. I don't know how. And so basically we then do a research design around it. And, and one of my main methodologies is student voice is your main source of data. And I've worked out a way of then turning that into quantitative to make it easier to snapshot it. And um, two, two groups, the drama group and the library group, well, not what you'd expect, Right. Did these research projects, both of them have been invite, were invited to present at their regional conferences. That's empowerment, but it's also based on curiosity. It's based on good research practice. It's based on student voice rather than making adult assumptions, and it's getting out into the community. So I think that's, I guess, an example of how we can work in our sphere of influence yet still have our big thinking to Share it and get it out there, like you're
1: trying to do. And it's fascinating all these points that you brought up. And I and I always remember one of the things uh, a college professor told me about how you look at anything. It's like a microscope. You you go either at the at the closest, you know, the uh, as close as you can go, and then you pull it up, pull it up, pull up, and, and reduce the magnification or intensify it. And and what you're bringing up here is is working on the day to day, every moment, every child. What do they need? Uh, living that experience then that moves over into a concentric circle, I guess I'm mixing my metaphors, but of, of uh, perhaps uh, modeling it for others, documenting it, sharing with others, uh, then it goes on to um, uh, working with others so that they can implement it. But we're also talking, and, and then the, the, at the school level, but we're also talking about, or, or you certainly brought up this idea of the I, the atomization of, of, uh, of society, how we're maybe in it for ourselves, or maybe our values, or we're going in one direction, somebody's going somewhere else. And that brings us back to this idea of of, of bio collective and and or just as a collective, as a species, as a as a community, as a whatever we want to look at, that we do have common interests. Um, we should hope that we all have common interests of the good of the kids, of the good of the planet, of the good of society. How do we get there? Might be a different situation, but it's it it, it, it one wonders whether how where incremental change will lead us. How do we get to revolutionary change? One requires the other. There needs to be also the, the, the a consciousness that's involved uh, in, 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 in understanding that we need to change these values. That there's a lot of things that are going on at the same time. And, and I don't necessarily know if this, as you point out this, if this continuum between progressive and conservative and traditional, whatever we want to call it, uh, educators is is already passe. Now it's, it's individual and collective and purpose. What is the purpose? And one of the things that brought us together is, is this idea that you know, yeah, choice and voice is fantastic. We're great, I'm all for choice and voice. I'm all for student agency and, and cultivating that curiosity. But when is it that we go over that hump and say, actually, where's the where? What are we going towards as a community, as a group, as a class, as a, as a society, as a species, as as, a, as as one of the species on the planet? How how do you think that? What do you think that path that is not linear uh, looks like to take us to where we need to be, working together?
0: It, it's 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 quite it's quite a huge question and frightening at times too, um, and it's certainly um, I, I don't know I don't think there's a clear cut answer, but I do believe that. The work you're doing, the work you know where we're trying to connect out. I do believe in the power of movements. Um, and I I know there's lots of movements going on and at various levels, and it's how how do we create a, a collaborative connectedness, so to speak. Um, and I think whenever we're managing or navigating change, there's great vulnerability. And I know probably one of the biggest issues around this question is that we need to go back and think about what it is we value to have the impetus to then go out, you know, and for me authenticity is so critical and I love, if you break down the word authenticity, it's to author. It's coming back down to how do I author my life for the greater good or for the common good and reframing our story because the story of our current society is more, as we know, we've talked about this of one of exploitation and and extraction, that's what the bandied word is now around. And it's true. It is very much based on what's in it for me. And until we change that worldview or reframe it or challenge it through our schools and through our conversations and what have you, we're only going to, even if it's unconscious, I think it's more conscious, we're going to keep perpetuating the current system because that's what our brain likes. We like default mode. We like safety. I don't want to change. And I was reading something recently around because I often get frustrated around this question of how I don't know if you do, but I get pushback, you know, around some of my thinking and that. And I've I've I read something. I can't. I think it might have been even. I can't remember if it was, but it was basically that. People can only come along on the journey for so far in terms of how much they've already learned, understood, processed or wanted to process. And so if what we're talking about now doesn't resonate or whatever, people will often push back or think, oh, that's a load of crap, you know, whatever, you know, that usual response. But it's more because they're not quite there yet to be on that edge of the next expansion of their thinking and Um, And that's what the problem is at the moment, is that we're all at different stages of the journey of realisation. Young people are right there in terms of the urgency around the climate and what we're doing and this exploitation sort of mindset and worldview, and are frustrated and powerless, to be quite frank, whereas I look at people of my vintage and older, and I'm generalising here, I don't see the urgency as great for obvious reasons. I'll be dead in 20 years. You know what I mean? Um, and that's not good enough, but what I'm saying is we're all on a continuum of of progression, of of trying to bring about change, and I think that's why, you know, if you think about it, we've got conservatives right through to, you know, absolutely, let's just get there. But how do we bring the collective along? I don't know the answer there, but I think it's got something to do with humility, and what I mean by that is I can get a bit um, high on my horse. I can get on my high horse, as we say here in Australia, and that can actually um, push people away because it can—it it feels foreign and therefore fearful. So, how do we create containers or environments where we return to civil discourse, which I don't see much evidence of? You know, when we're sort of talking about extremes, even within education, where we we have civil discourse around all of the issues we're dealing with, but we're willing to listen to all points of view and then say, okay, so what? So what is the one thing we could do that would have the greatest impact to move forward rather than staying in the stalemate? And until we all, those different diverse voices come to the table and have a civil discourse, I, I can't see how we can move forward. Because what happens, Benjamin, is you'll attract people like me where we're, we're thinking a certain way, we, we, we feel strongly about the environment and how do we, you know, justly educate and all the rest of it, but that's not helpful because we need to bring other thinking in, the people who might think, well, what are you two going on about? There's no problem, you know? And so we create these tribes, again, of thinking. And I just, I think that I I, I can't articulate it well enough, but it's like, I just see this table and how do we bring the key stakeholders together to really have robust, respectful civil discourse for the sake of our students and for the sake of the planet, because our students are our pe- our young ones who will inherit the earth, so to speak. Um, I haven't answered your question, but I'm just throwing a few ideas out there.
1: Actually, you have answered the question quite well because, you know, as somebody, you know, my, my background in, in, in history is, is revolution and so forth. And it's always like, yeah, we need to have a plan and organize and, and vanguard party and so forth. And it stays at the intellectual. But the question um, posed, how do we get there, is, is not necessarily about a plan If somebody's got a found fantastic, but at the end of the day, what you bring it up is about the heart, opening up to other people, empathy, uh, listening, which I guess is with the ears, but it's also with the heart, um, uh. being respectful, the civil discourse, modeling that you mentioned about living our own values, being authentic. Uh, perhaps that is you know, the the first of many steps towards towards getting somewhere, of, of being able to be that model, um, bringing it back to, these ideas of kindness, as well uh, of empathy, of caring, the difference that can make, and that serves as its own um, as its own beacon, uh, rather than mm-hmm. pummeling people with with uh, intellectual uh, pseudo academic discourse that, frankly, they don't care about because they're so busy. They're you know that they don't necessarily mm-hmm. have space, unfortunately, to, to do that uh, to, to to engage in the thinking or or whatever it might be, um, and and so I, I just. Um, yeah, you've answered it perfectly. Actually, maybe it's leading with the heart rather than always with the brain, which goes back to our original point <laughs> about how how it's yes. how it's a whole body learning, whole body acting, whole body uh, uh, embodiment. Here, there's a word of our values, right? I mean, that mm. that's the, the, the same root word, um, and, and that'll that'll probably make a, a massive difference. Um, and, and this actually brings me to another point that I, that I really wanted to touch upon with you and, and kind of segueing and maybe we'll bring it back but but you did your research on 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 the power of animals with with mm-hmm. with uh, learners right. Tell us a little bit about that because that's certainly something that that brings in, you know, the effective side uh, greatly. How, how did that go and, and, and tell us a bit more about that.
0: It's interesting you raise it because I I, I pulled out my thesis just to have a look and think, well, because I did that in 20, finished in 2011, 2012. And I actually went back to it and I thank you for that. And I think, wow, there's some pretty good thinking in there. and, And certainly what we're talking about today in terms of, but at the time, and I'll be really honest with you, it wasn't that I was embarrassed about my thesis. It's just that I didn't think anyone would take it seriously. And yet I knew how important it was. And the title of the thesis is What's a Dog Got to Do with Education? And that literally was a piece of qualitative data that came out of the mouth of a parent. I thought, that's a clanger. I'm going to make that the title of my thesis. But the byline's the most important thing, and that is illuminating what matters in education and in life. And it came down to matters of the heart, and it came down to relationship. And Gus, who was the English springer spaniel, he was my dog. I trained him for the job. He was a therapy dog. He's not just like what's happening nowadays where I see, oh, we've got a therapy dog. No, it's just the principal's pet or someone's pet. And we've got to be really careful around that. And that's a whole other story. And um, so he came in. I was at the time the year 10 coordinator of 350-odd kids, co-ed, northern suburbs of Melbourne, a bit rough but loved it, and I was very concerned about the well-being of the students. So I've got a very strong well-being background. That you know, if we really want learning to happen, we've got to address the well-being first. And as we know, that's not been the case. But that's starting to get legs on it now. Back then, when I did this thesis, um, that's what my focus was. I didn't feel like I was able to support the young people in my care well enough because the problems that I was dealing with were huge. And it, I'd go home absolutely depleted and concerned about their well-being and they're just amazed. so anyway this one day I was just and this is the curiosity story so this is what drives this question we started with around curiosity I was ready to give up education I, I was ready just to walk at that point I thought I just don't see how I can add anything to this conversation to the I don't feel like I can do this because it's just not aligning with my values and what I thought what I you know, my beliefs and I just see these young people struggling and what have you. Um anyway, so I was watching <laughs> you have gotta it's a story I have to tell. So it was a documentary, Dogs, you know, Dog's Life, something like that. Um, and it was um this young boy Noah, I'll never forget it. And I remember watching it, I can just see it. And he was it was in a based in an American alternative setting, you know, for kids who are basically on their last rung, so to speak. But they'd introduced um, a therapy dog training sort of um scenario where these young people had to apply that they would come to school but they would also be responsible for training a therapy dog for a person with a disability over a two-year frame and so in the morning the dogs lived with their carers outside school time but the young boy Noah he would be responsible for bingo that was the dog's name um, while he was doing classes in the morning and then in the afternoon they would have to do the legitimate training of a therapy animal for it to be certified. Long and the short of it was it really turned this young boy's life around. You know, he really was heading toward juvenile detention, basically. Um, but at the end, you know, he could articulate what that um, what bingo did for him in terms of his empathy, his capacity to connect with others, to, t- to to turn his life around for the sake of the other. So that common good thing. And he finished school and all the rest. And I'd love to know what he's doing now. And so I just so my curiosity was absolutely ignited and I thought, wow, I wonder what would happen if I brought a therapy dog to my large co-ed school, 2,000 kids, secondary. And I had to jump through a lot of hoops to get there and I won't bore you with the details, but that journey was transformational for me because it was based on curiosity. I've always been been a horse, you know, I've had animals all my life, we've just been surrounded by animals and great affinity for them and um so i jumped in the deep end i had a university that would support it um i was lucky there they didn't tell me what i had to do they said yep we'll support you with this curiosity they were fascinated what have you and i just went on this journey of right from depth ecology to depth psychology to quantum physics to morphic fields trying to work out something happened when gus came into the classroom The energy changed, the dynamics changed, the relationships changed, empathy grew. It was just the most phenomenal thing to witness over seven years. So it was longitudinal and it didn't matter if it was girl, boy, year seven, so a 12-year-old to an 18-year-old. I had the same sort of data coming through and they would talk about their classroom feeling like family and they would say, to me you know we can see you've got a heart by the way you interact with Gus we watch how you work with them and we realize that you know boundaries are important and and the girls would say hey we're finally seeing that the boys have got a heart look at how they and I'd say well what makes you say that and they talk about how they'd watch the boys these tough rough you know um boys um just melt with Gus and be able to show their nurturing side because it was socially okay to do so Um, it was just phenomenal it was a phenomenal experience both at a intellectual growth side of things and learning through to understanding the interconnectedness of life and I went into that whole idea of systems theory systems thinking and the interconnectedness of, of a classroom and the dynamics and what have you so I would definitely say that heart and mind and spirit to a degree is, you know, is really um, something we don't pay enough attention to in the classroom. So to give you an example, I still use those experiences in my classrooms today where I consciously, before I step into any classroom space, will make sure that my energy is positive, with positive intent, with joy, with happiness, because that's what they commented on. They look forward to coming to class. They are happy, they were joyful. They could concentrate which was a real paradox because most people thought, no, 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 he'll just be a distraction. He was for the first three days. And then he just became part of the furniture. And they talk about how watching him calmed them down and they found then that they could concentrate and what have you. Now, I have no data to show that in their academic outcomes, but I can certainly tell you from a well-being wellbeing sense it was, it was in their words and in their writing. So there's lots of anecdotes and that sort of thing. The only reason I didn't publish that um, thesis was because I was concerned about the well-being of the dog or well-being of therapy dogs. So, again, that whole concept of using animals for uh, human gain and because he died quite young and I don't know if it was because of his breed or whether I was asking too much of him or what have you. He seemed to be happy to come to work in that. So I put a caveat at the end of the thesis to say more research is required to work out what's the beneficial aspect for the animal, <laughs> for the, you know, it, 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 it we've got to be, if we're on about um, the heart, we've got to remember that this sentient being is also, um, has to be cared for and 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 understood, well, what's he getting out of this as well? You know, we, we're happy to say we use animals and it's working. And I guess there'd be a lot of big organisations that would not have their best interest to pursue that research like, We know the guide dogs and those big organisations and I get that. It's a real tension. So um, I think they have their place in schools because I think they create softer environments, more empathy, certainly relationship, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think we, we need to more try and connect young people to nature and the environment beyond a domesticated animal um to recognize um you know how that bee is so important to you being alive for example you know let's get down to them really understanding the interconnectedness of life and how you know that's where the empathy needs to be because that's where they'll think well we need to protect this you know we need to do something that's um meaningful and action-based so i don't know again if i've answered the question but um I thank you for asking that because it was very fun going. It was a lot of fun going back down memory lane there.
1: Yeah. Again, we're, we're coming back to the same themes of of heart and, and mind mm-hmm. and purpose and, you know, working towards something as a collective, these things just keep coming up and up and maybe you're right. Maybe it's because we're, I mean, you know, we're, we're preaching to our own choir. I get that. But at the same time, it's, it's, it just seems like there, it, it is um, inescapable, this idea that we, cannot find fulfillment without leading with the heart by definition because um be, because of, of that emotional i mean i don't know if it's by definition but certainly there there there, there has to be uh, a a connection to to our desires and to our motivation what drives us and, and and that is a whole body experience and animals it's very um interesting how you talk about some of these boys that come out and are able to be soft finally um, mm-hmm. rather than be uh rough and tumble and and i see that with uh, with my own kid who who tries to be he's 14 he tries to be tough gosh he's so mm-hmm. good with the cats you know he gets he's the mm-hmm. only you know my daughter as well who is she's so good with these animals um, they're not afraid to say I, mm-hmm. I love you they're not afraid to kiss them they don't do that with humans mm-hmm. so 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 it's there it brings mm-hmm. it out in such a wonderful way um mm-hmm. the 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 ethical piece and much like with zoos what do we do with zoos um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If poor animals but at the same time mm-hmm. if it's for a greater cause um i, I used to be a Radical big believer things. in zoos but now mm-hmm. i wonder i just wonder if it's even worth mm-hmm. the whole thing um we certainly we, you know, living in Thailand, going to see uh, the hill tribes mm-hmm. sounds wonderful. It's great to be exposed. At um, the same time, you go to gawk at these people. You know, uh, mm-hmm. kind of like in a mm-hmm. zoo. It, uh, I feel very uncomfortable with that. I don't know where I where I sit. I must be the same thing mm-hmm. in Australia with some of the uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, the the indigenous uh, peoples there as mm-hmm. well. Going to their to their to their parts of the world, and uh, mm-hmm. all these all these things are coming up, right? All, all these what's right, what's mm-hmm. wrong, questioning, wondering. Uh, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on, on that, or what's going on in Australia with with, with some of these um, the indigenous uh, communities.
0: Oh, we we have a uh, I don't even know if I want to go there, to be honest. I mean, we have a very um, inter- interesting history. Um, I I would I would say um, quite a shameful history, and that's what we're trying to deal with at the moment is shame. And I know Brene Brown always says, you know, where there's blame, there's shame, and you know, we have a history of blaming, you know, um, you know, it's their fault and, you know, all this sort of thing. But that's our shame as colonised, you know, our colonisation history, you know. And I think what it comes back to, because I've thought about this a lot because we have a shocking record too around our treatment of asylum seekers and and refugees, which I feel ashamed about as an Australian and um, I do what I can, you know, as an action piece in my personal life to deal with that. But I keep coming back to the why. Why? Why is this that we try and other people? Why? Why is there this di- dividedness and this tribal mentality of superiority and and what have you? And you know, it it, it just uh, it. I, I don't know because I was raised in a in a family. I love my family very much. We were pastoral family, so off the land, and and so with that comes you know, um, let's put it this way: a more racist type erring. But I remember being in school, and it, again, it comes back to our our experiences in life that ch- turn us around, and we need to be exposed, you know, to 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 question and and question the status quo. And I remember being in year one, and we had a young Indigenous girl in our class, and I'll never forget her treatment. And particularly this day, you know, I'm a bit old. We had wooden floors and wooden desks, and and um, she stood up to answer a question, and um, she wet her pants, you know, she was frightened. And I remember, you know, you remember the visual. And I I, I felt so angry as a young person at that age, thinking this is wrong. And so as a consequence, I've, I've always been very sensitive around Indigenous issues. And I think also it comes back to my own story of, you know, I don't belong to the, the standard sort of, um, cisgender you know white um, middle class and and that's okay everyone's okay but I think it maybe that's what created a sensitivity toward not othering but trying to embrace the the wonderful kaleidoscope of diversity you know that it's there's just so much to learn and and wonder at and that's why I love travel when you can is because it broadens my expertise but like you I don't like going gawking at, at, at civilizations or what have you as well it's it's Hopefully, more experiential um, and, and a personal transformation as a consequence. So, I'd, I think I'm going around in circles here. I think I don't know. I, I I just think we live in such divided times, and I think it's something to do with ourselves again. You know, we think of what 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 I live a divided life. I'll show you what I think could be acceptable, but I and you know I'm just using you as an example. You know, but if I don't feel safe with you. I'm going to, as Brené Brown would say, I'm going to armour up. You, you know what I mean? But I think we've got to be brave enough to step out and say it for what it is. And I think that's going back to some of our questions here of how do we move forward in this conversation around transforming education so that it's meaningful and purposeful for all students. I think we've got to be courageous enough to start stepping up and saying not good enough. We've got to rethink. We've got to do things... For the sake of the students, and that is the issue. Maybe it's something about changing this paradigm of teacher and teaching and curriculum to learner and learning and a pedagogy that of curiosity and and whatever. And until we start going back to our core purpose, which is developing providing opportunities for young people to learn about themselves and where they fit in the world, for one of a better way of defining learning. Um, yeah I wonder if they're the conversations we've got to have and that's why there's some great people out there really advocating and that but I, I don't know I, I have no answers I just have lots of questions
1: <laughs> but but it's I, I think you know we live in a world where everybody's expected to have an answer about everything but maybe it's just about having yeah. a conversation just leaving little yeah. sense that we eventually pick up Correct. and and that they'll grow but when, one of the things that that I'm going to take away from this conversation for sure is the um, what you would think is, um, is, is, is exclusive, but it's not that the kaleidoscope of, of diversity, as you, as you mentioned, of, of different experiences, different who we are, but at the same time, breaking down this the, the dualism, we can have a diversity of, of, of who we are, what we are, who we are, the, 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 the kaleidoscope, and at the same time, not have a dualism. We can mm-hmm. all be the same, but different. And, and that brings mm-hmm. us back to the classroom. We can all have different curiosities but work towards the same purpose. No othering of student and teacher. It's not the same. You know, mm-hmm. you see, I see some of these teachers, they, they're they so keen to, to, to be the expert. And, and if the students don't comply, you know, all, the, all, all, these, all, these, all these consequences happen, you know. Um, let's break down that dualism and embrace the, the, the kaleidoscope of our experiences. More experience, less experience this and that. Um, that that certainly would be a fantastic breakthrough if we could do that on a micro scale. Then that grows up a bit. Um, so mm-hmm. it's it's um, it's it's so revealing. We talk about education, but but it all comes together. Every experience we have all brings us back to the relationships that we have mm-hmm. with ourselves. Really, if we break down the dualism, mm-hmm. ourselves, the world being one. Listen, I I really want to thank you. Um, This has been really enriching and and, and I'm going to go away with a lot of these, uh, these strings that are, that are, that are there, but, but I want them to be there. I want them because that, that's going to uh, stimulate my own thinking. Um, I'm going to ask if there's anything else that you have on your mind, anything else that that you've been thinking about what you're doing. um, uh, What's, what's keeping you uh, occupied uh, uh, mentally and, and physically these days?
0: Uh, I think mentally and sort of at that heart level is is this um, just wanting to explore and I'd love to explore with other thinkers as well this whole notion of curiosity and how do we intentionally create these cultures of curiosity within our classroom which we have as a sphere of influence but, but how can we ignite curiosity as the driving force of education um, I know Tom talks about that with PBL and things like that or even with design thinking and and the empathy that fits with that as well. And, and that's what we want is curiosity, empathy, action. Um, and to probably a final thought, I love this idea of, of courage and, you know, core whatever you want to call it is the Latin, is Latin for of the heart. So how can we be courageous educators um, willing to take a stand, willing to stand with and for our students so that they have the best opportunity possible to be their best selves so that's it in a nutshell for me
1: right excellent thank you so much i really appreciate your time how, how do people get a get a hold of you if they if uh, you want them to of course
0: oh i'd love anyone particularly around the curiosity piece i'm um, i'm just via linkedin um that's my easiest way i've got details there so it's all good Fern nichols you'll find me thank you
1: this has been the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud, and I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Bird Nichols for being on our show. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Uh, I know I mentioned last time on the last podcast that I would um, be my own guest, I suppose, uh, and that still hasn't happened, but uh, I'm looking forward to doing that very, very near future. Uh, there's a couple of things that I'd like to clarify in my own mind, a couple articles and books and, and just conversations that, that I need to have. Uh, and I'm hoping that what we talk about moving forward putting biocentrism at the center of everything you do breaking down the binaries between us them human animal person person or whatever will contribute to uh giving our thinking and action purpose towards the welfare of the biocollective that is everyone that has an interest everything that has an interest every species living being an entity that has an interest in the healthfulness of the planet uh, this will come very soon and in the meantime please go on www.coconut-thinking.design. Leave us your thoughts. uh, Connect with us. Uh, We're we're very inspired by the conversations that we have. Uh, Hopefully we're adding to the conversation ourselves. uh, But in the meantime, uh, we will speak to you soon.